I bought a personal safety alarm off Amazon recently because over the summer I was working a job where I had to walk to work at 4.30 or 5 in the morning. So it's a little plastic alarm with a sort of drawstring that you pull out. Sometimes they're quite crudely called rape whistles or something. Is that right? They are, yeah. So that was Beth. And, uh, yeah, Beth bought herself a rape whistle because, well, because she had a dilemma. So picture this, right? You're a uni student and you're short on cash. You get offered a job at a bakery a few blocks away, but there is one problem. You have to start work at 5am and you don't own a car. So you are walking to work, my friend, in the dark, by yourself. Now, remember, (laughs) you are poor. It's not funny. But you need the money, right? So do you take the job? Or do you stay at home and eat baked beans slash tuna in a can for presumably the rest of eternity? Um, If you do take the job, do you walk or do you catch a cab? Do you take the shortcut or do you walk the long route because there's better lighting? Do you hold your house keys in your knuckles the whole way there? But first, if you have ever asked yourself those questions, then, congratulations, you have what is called situational awareness. Now, I'll admit that is a very snazzy buzzword. And in this episode, we are going to get to the bottom of what the heck it even means and maybe try and set a few things straight. Sexism and the City. G'day everyone, you are listening to Sexism and the City, a Plan International Australia podcast. Plan is all about equality for girls. Believe me, I know. I'm your host Jan Fran, thanks so much for being here with me. And just a heads up, this episode deals with themes of sexual harassment and assault, so if you do have kids around, tell them to go and get! No, I'm kidding, but please be aware that we are covering some heavy issues, so I'm going to leave that one in your court. All right, let's go back to hearing from Beth. She did take the job at the bakery uh, with the ungodly start time of 5am and she sort of had no choice but to walk there. It was just that I had been walking to work at very early in the morning and just very alert, um, trying to get the walk over as quickly as possible, thinking about what I would do if anything was to happen. I guess also being that early in the morning, you're half asleep too, so you feel quite vulnerable in that way. Fair enough. So what do you do? Beth had an idea of something that might make her feel better, her words, about the whole scenario. A rape whistle, or to use this sort of official terminology, a personal safety alarm. The important bit is what it sounds like, though. So let me give you a demo. You might want to put the volume down or take your headphones out of your ears for this one. Yeah, okay, okay, KKK, we get the idea. It's very loud. Do not try this at home, kids, as Beth discovered. It was just so loud that for for a second I was really disorientated and I just couldn't get the pin back into it, which obviously just made it worse. Personal safety alarms seem, I'm going to put it out there, like a a bit of an old-fashioned thing, right? Like in my mind, they're like that whistle, that rose blue while stuck on that raft after the Titanic sunk. You know, they either look like that or a foghorn. But methods of attracting and or deterring attention have actually come quite a long way since 
1912, believe it or not. And so what, you just jumped online, Amazon. What did you type in? (laughs) I just typed in personal alarms and there's quite a range of them that comes up. They vary drastically in price. I think mine was the cheapest at about $20 um, and then they go all the way up to a few hundred dollars. Mm. Do you know anyone else that has one? Uh, My mum now has one, (laughs) but no one else. There's quite an industry built around personal safety devices, and not just for women, but, you know, for children, for the elderly, even for some professions, such as nursing. When it comes to sexual assault, though, it's actually hard to know whether a personal safety alarm or, you know, a so-called rape whistle, whether they actually work. Still, there are so many products, some of them, I'm going to have to say, quite hilarious, that are marketed to keep women safe. So get this. There is something called anti-rape underwear, which sort of looks like thick boy-leg underpants, except it has these weird locks and straps around the thighs and the waist that make it very difficult to take off. (laughs) It is basically a modern-day chastity belt, but it is a real product. There is a sticker that you can put in your bra that has a sensor in it, which learns how you typically take your clothes off. Then if your clothes are removed in any kind of like unusual way, an alarm goes off and it sends an alert to your family and friends, like to their phones. There are alarms that come in the shape of lipsticks and jewellery. There's like a smart ring that has a panic button. There's a bracelet that apparently releases like a very potent, awful smell. Yeah, all of this to keep women safe. Now, I'm not necessarily against personal safety alarms, although I would 10,000% not wear anti-rape underwear. But I think there are, you know, some, shall we say, issues in placing the onus on the victim to protect themselves rather than, say, on the perpetrator to, I don't know, not assault anyone. This is where the term situational awareness comes in. The term situational awareness was publicly used by the police after the horrific rape and murder of 22-year-old Eurydice Dixon. In June 2018, Eurydice was walking home across a park in Melbourne in the early hours of the morning when she was raped and murdered by a 19-year-old man, just seemingly just totally randomly. In response to the attack, Superintendent David Clayton from the Victoria Police said, This is an area of high community activity, so just make sure you have situational awareness, that you're aware of your surroundings. If you've got a mobile phone, carry it, and if you've got any concerns, call police. The story was massive, partly because it was so unbelievably sad and shocking but also because of the way the police responded and their use of the term situational awareness. It, I think to a lot of people, felt like the cops were sort of stating the obvious, like there was this assumption that somehow women or victims of sexual assault aren't aware of their surroundings when that is all we ever are. Now, it is worth adding that those comments were allegedly taken out of context because the attacker was actually still on the loose. But... Folks got mad because I think it tapped into a much bigger concern that women hold. Like, how many times have you walked through an alleyway with keys sticking out of your knuckles? You know, how many times have you called a mate and just pretended to talk really loudly on the phone? 
How many times have you not had music in your ears while walking to a car in the car park? How many times have you crossed a road because you noticed some dude walking like a little too closely behind you, even though they weren't doing anything? We found out later that Eurydice Dixon was not only carrying a mobile phone, but that she texted her friend saying, I'm almost home safe. Honestly, how many times have you done that? That is situational awareness. It didn't work. So folks got mad and everyone from the PM down insisted it wasn't just women who had to be situationally aware, so to speak, but that men had a role to play here too. I've never had quite so many people call up after a story, actually, just to talk to me and make this not-all-men kind of point. That's Conrad Marshall. He is a journalist who wrote a piece for Fairfax called After Eurydice, What Should Men Do? So in the piece, Conrad wrote about the kind of tangible everyday acts that men can do to make women feel safer. I catch lots of trains home at night and get off at a station in the suburbs and it's fairly fairly dark out there. There are alleys and windswept roads and I see young women walking home and for a long time now I've sort of thought about, well, what do they think of me? How do they regard me? I'm, I'm six foot four, a little over 100 kilos, got a beard, wearing a big black coat, uh, would they be threatened by me? And the obvious answer is... I'm freaked you know, out already. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you would be, <laughs> wouldn't you? Like, you You're would wearing be. a big black coat, come on. <laughs> Put some colours yeah, on. <laughs> that's right. You know, so I, I just became sort of aware that even if I'm in a hurry, walking behind this person and coming up quickly to pass them to get home, they, they don't know that I'm rushing home to see my wife and five-year-old son. They just know that there's a big bloke coming up behind them real quick. Conrad developed what he calls a kit bag of tricks, which is sort of a way for men, I guess, to have situational awareness of women's situation, if that makes sense, i.e. to put themselves in the woman's shoes. So let's say I get off the train and a woman does too. If I see that she's heading in the same direction that I'm going to be walking, well, I might just sit for a couple of minutes and look at my phone so that she can open up a bunch of distance between me and her so that she doesn't feel like there's some dude right behind her. Uh, Another one was sort of I would cross the street sometimes and then sort of speed up so that I'm in front of the woman so that she can see me and kind of regard me from a, a distance and that way the threat is sort of managed rather than kind of disappears into the ether and could be lurking somewhere. Another one was, as I said, calling someone on the phone so that it cuts through the sort of the nasty silence on a, on a darkened street. But I wonder if, you know, a predator could then, you know, they could pretend to talk on the phone, I guess. Thing is, Conrad reckons a lot of dudes are doing this already. After the story was printed and I'd listed off like different behaviours like that, I actually got a lot of guys emailing in or messaging me to say, thanks, I've been doing this for years. Uh, I reckon it's probably not as isolated as you think. I think a lot of guys are aware of this. Do men have any situational awareness, again, I'm doing air quotes, around their own safety? Like when you walk through the city, do you have a key in your knuckles? I probably don't because as I mentioned earlier, like I'm I'm 6'4", I'm 105 kilos, I've got a beard, 
I think I'm not going to be the first person that someone wants to attack. But then I've had a lot of friends who are you know, bigger and they, they say the opposite. They say that when they go into a pub, they, they know that they're going to be the first person picked out by somebody who's spoiling for a fight because like big bodies just attract that. But I'd say, yeah, most guys would cross the street if a group of raucous sort of 20-somethings is walking in their direction. So essentially, if you're a dude, like imagine the physical difference for you if you're walking down the street at night alone and you're being stared down by like an extremely tall NBA player or a group of footballers who are like a foot taller and a shoulder wider than you. Now imagine you're wearing heels. That is sort of what it is like for ladies on the reg. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just saying, you know what, if you do want to make a difference, if you want to help in some way, maybe consider what it's like in someone else's shoes. And if, you know, you can see it from their point of view, here's something you can do. It's as simple as that. How dare you bring up a rational and compassionate and empathetic argument? <laughs> You'll have to be defending yourself against the not all menners for the rest of your life. You know this now, don't you? <laughs> That's right. You'll have to re- repeat the same argument again and again and again. So good luck with that. So much of it's just common sense, isn't it? Well, I, I think you there know? is an element of empathy to some degree. And yeah. also, sort of from, from where I'm sitting, it doesn't really cost you that much to cross the street. No. Now, it's one thing for an individual or a group of people to have an awareness of their situation or surroundings, but how do we sort of expand that further? Well, I think that um, city planners, police, transport authorities, politicians, they really need to think very carefully about the way they're engaging with the design of cities. That's Dr Nicole Carms, the director of XYX Lab at Monash University. The work that we're doing is really about trying to think how we can bring these city stakeholders, people that would consider themselves to be experts in city planning, um, alongside women and girls so that we can really start to see how they can co-design cities together. We've got people with conflicting ideas of the same city in a room thinking about how together they can design city spaces that actually account for the experiences of young women and girls. We also need to start to think very carefully about gender mainstreaming in the cities that we've surveyed. Gender mainstreaming. Okay, stay with me, stay with me, it's a thing. It is a thing, it happened in Austria. It's sort of like taking the idea of situational awareness and upscaling it, you know, by turning it into a policy of sorts. So in 1999, officials in Vienna did something a little crazy. They surveyed women (laughs) as well as men. They surveyed everybody about how often and why they used public transport, right? Apparently, and this is according to the person who conducted the survey, most of the men filled out the questionnaire in less than five minutes. But the women just couldn't stop writing. It turned out that women were using public transport such as buses and trains and taxis so much more often than men. And they were travelling by foot more and in much more varied ways, you know, often with their kids or elderly parents. So recognising this, the city planners decided to improve pedestrian mobility and access to public transit. So more lighting was added for safety. Sidewalks were widened so that women could kind of navigate narrow streets with prams or whatever. They even added a massive staircase with a ramp running through it near a major intersection to make crossing easier for women with strollers. 
So Vienna is a significant example around gender mainstreaming because it's a long case study. So they've had a gender mainstreaming policy in their city governance for somewhere between 20 and 25 years. So we're actually now able to see the evidence of how it's been benefiting women and girls and indeed the whole community because of that length of time. They actually consult women at every stage of the design process with regard to public urban spaces. This particular model we can see is having huge benefits because of the accessibility around the city and because of the sense of safety that women are feeling in that city. Remember that these are solutions that go into planning and designing our cities to make them safer. That is the long game. There's also a slightly shorter game that we can kind of start playing in the meantime. So I invited three folks into the studio with three different kind of perspectives to get their take on some shorter term solutions. Hi, it's Kelsey Hegarty from the University of Melbourne here in the Department of General Practice. I also work at the Royal Women's Hospital and I have a great title. It's the Chair of Family Violence Prevention. Wouldn't that be a dream? That is definitely a not bad title to have. Do you have a title like that, Jessica? Um, family annoyance. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm a student here at the University of Melbourne. I'm currently completing my honours in uh, gender studies where I'm looking at uh, the representation of women in video games. Okay. And Saul, is that is that the pronunciation or Saul. is it Saul? Sure. My name is Saul Sawarsa. I'm the campaigns officer here at Plan International Australia. Okay. What do they make of this so-called situational awareness? I think the the issue with situational awareness, and particularly from police, they're coming at it from a, a point where a lot of the issues that would lead up to violence have already occurred. And it, it's really about dealing with this sort of last moment intervention. And if you were to speak to a public health professional, I, I really think that they would have very different things to say and situational awareness wouldn't be quite as high up there, you know? Absolutely not. It's sort of like the CCTV cameras, it's, you know, and the and the body alarm sort of things. And Precisely. It's end stage mm-hmm. and it's not on the prevention spectrum. Yeah. So where should we be in terms of the discussion then? Talking to men, I think, is <laughs> like understated. But personally, I think in Australia we've got a really prominent mate culture and I feel like tackling that and men like checking each other's behavior would go a hell of a long way like you know uh, a guy saying to his mate after his you know wolf whistled the girl on the street like that's not okay you know like it it has a huge effect in limiting the progression of these behaviors and stopping them in their tracks altogether so to sort of recap there is kind of a a prevention spectrum if you will so it's not those interventions in the last final awful moments that rape alarms or, you know, pepper sprays are kind of capitalising on. These are the actions that we can all start taking, you know, particularly dudes, to kind of just check the behaviour of ourselves and sort of those around us. And admittedly, it is not always easy. It's not. But I think when it's done right, it can be effective. It's always going to be very contextual. I think when it comes to your friends, if you find the time to uh, tap your friend on the shoulder and take them away away from a crowd of people and be like, was that really necessary? Do you really think that that was an appropriate thing to say? I think X, Y, Z. Whereas with strangers and whatnot, I, I really think that sometimes it can be just about mitigating the actual risk. You can see someone, you know, a very drunk man or something on a tram who is leering and speaking to a lot of women and making people uncomfortable. And as a man, I'd be quite comfortable to just walk up to him and say hi and, you know, now this person would be directing all of their attention to me, leaving everybody else sort of on their on their way. The threat that 
sort of reaches me is actually quite low. If anything, I can manage that situation quite easily as another man. Mm. Um, so it's not actually about made. necessarily um, going up to him and calling him out on his behaviour. It's sort of just about acknowledging he's there, maybe taking a seat next to him, just sort of letting him know that, that you're there as well and it's not very confrontational. Precisely. I think that's already mm. a step in, in the right direction, at least for people's experience of public transport. Now, there is a slight elephant in the room, I think, that it is important to address. We hear so much more about violence that occurs on the streets than violence that occurs, say, in the home. And sadly, within the home, by someone that you know and trust, violence is actually much more likely to happen. According to our watch, the most common form of violence against women is by an intimate partner. That is current or previous spouse, boyfriend or de facto. So why do we hear so much more about violence on the streets? Because it's the other. It's too difficult. It's difficult enough to see someone who's more like you. So it's it's more difficult for me to know that this young woman was in my son's school and she's middle class and educated. You know, people identify with that or Rosie Batty even. So even within the home, they identify more with people who are more like themselves. But if you're thinking just between a stranger, which is a random thing, versus someone you love and trust in your family, it's hard for people to start to look around their family and think, is that grandfather sexually abusing my daughter? You know, mm. whereas you could that's a of, much tougher conversation much to have, tougher isn't it? Thought, yeah. And so people don't want to go there. I mean, when we hear about a girl or a woman being attacked on her way home at night, I feel like we can we can put ourselves in that situation, right? We think I walk home at night in a park all the time. I live in a city. You know, I do comedy and finish at comedy clubs or at work or wherever I am late. That could have just very easily been me walking home trying to have an awareness of my situation, women, I think we respond to that by changing our behaviour. We take the long route because there's street lighting. We buy a rape whistle to feel safe. Maybe we don't take the job at the bakery. Oh, I definitely sit on the side that I, I shouldn't have to do these things. But unfortunately, at, at the moment, I feel like I, I do. So that's Beth again. Remember Beth from the beginning of the episode with the bakery job. But it would be much better, of course, if if it was no longer my responsibility to do all of these actions and to take care of myself, but just someone else's responsibility to not try to harm me. Yeah. Imagine if we could fill newspapers with more articles like Conrad's. I, I don't know. I, I think it would be interesting if more men were talking about situational awareness. No? Imagine if city planners and authorities were talking about situational awareness with girls and women in mind all the time. I'll give the final word to Jess, who I think sums it up quite nicely. Make a difference. Don't just say you're an ally. Don't just say, oh, I love women. Do something to prove that at a point, if they really do want to help, they need to be active about it and make good on their word. Yes, indeed. You have been listening to Sexism and the City. Thank you so much for being here with me. If this episode has triggered anything for you and you'd like to speak to a counsellor, remember you can call 1-800-RESPECT. Sexism and the City is a Plan International Australia podcast. We're an organisation who work to tackle the root causes of inequality facing girls around the world. Believe it. The podcast is hosted by me, Jan Fran. The series is produced by Kayla Robertson. Associate producer is Gavin Neighbour. 
It's mixed by Gavin Neighbour at the Hallwood Recording Studio at the University of Melbourne. Researched by Andrea Kano-Botero and Madeline Spencer. Artwork is by Donna Kelly. Theme music is by Paul Greenstein. If you have any thoughts on this episode or you want to find out more about Plan's work, please head to the Plan International Australia website at plan.org.au forward slash podcast or find me on Facebook under Jan Friend. I look forward to hearing from you. Have a great day.